This is the National Medicine Symposium from the Canberra National Convention Centre. Now, our next uh, discussion is the title of this panel is, is Australian Perspectives on Innovations in Policy and Health Technology Assessment. We again have a terrific lineup of speakers here for you. Now, our focus here is how is Australia responding to the challenge of personalised medicine and innovations in health technology from a regulatory and policy perspective? And I thought it was just interesting too to here, uh, Hans George there said he didn't like the terminology personalised medicine and was preferring to talk about stratified medicine as a better term, but we might, uh, we might touch on that. But now just a, a very briefly about our panellists, as I say their full bios are in your program book. Adjunct Professor John Skerritt is a Secretary for Health Products Regulation in the Commonwealth Department of Health. And apart from his role as a member of the department's executive, he has overall responsibility for both the TGA and the Office of Drug Control. So one that many people want to know. Next to John is Joe Watson. Joe is Chair of Consumers Health Forum. Joe has been a consumer advocate in health for several decades. She's the Deputy Chair of the consumer, Consumers Health Forum and Chair of the HDA Consumer Consultative Committee established within the Commonwealth Department of Health. We have um, Dr. Megan Kenny, who is a, a late uh, call-in, and thank you very much for joining us today. Your program notes uh, have said that Penny Shakespeare was joining us for this panel, but she's been unable to. So thank you, Dr. Megan Kenny, for sitting, as, as sitting in at such late notice. Megan is the Senior Medical Advisor, Technology Assessment and Access Division at the Department of Health. And our final... I beg your pardon, Andrew. Professor Andrew Wilson is the Chair of the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee and Co-Director of the Menzies Centre for Health Policy at the University of Sydney. He leads the Australian Prevention Partnership Centre. So as you can see, a fantastic uh, lineup of people to speak on this subject. Now, we've asked each of our panellists to just give us a five-minute overview, mm. uh, their take from where they sit of, or they can stand at the podium, that's fine, but their take on, uh, on the, um, the, the topic, Australian perspectives mm. on innovation in policy and health technology assessment. And I think it's only fair, John, if we begin mm. with you. Thank you. <coughs> so good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and apologise for my hoarse voice. Uh, I'm going to pick up on many of the themes that Hans Gorg uh, touched on, uh, in, but innovation in medicines regulation in five minutes. Uh, and in some of the areas, such as our facilitated regulatory pathways, we've actually quite unashamedly cherry-picked what we saw, and we may live to be wrong, as the best elements of the European, the American and some other countries' systems. We were a little bit later than other countries to this area, and we also realised that uh, we're generally a recipient of clinical trials, even though there's an active clinical trials program in Australia. So unlike FDA and EMA, who can work with a company to dictate what a clinical trial should be designed like, it would be inappropriate for a country that's 2 or 3% of a world market to do that. So we have a range of facilitated pathways, they're all in place now, <clears throat> use of a comparable overseas regulators report. So if EMA is finished evaluating a drug, we can uh, do a review in 120 days if the product is uh, uh, essentially the same product. Uh, priority review of a complete data dossier and there's a designation stage where, and I'll talk about the eligibility criteria, some are similar substantial evidence for it being able to address a serious condition, major therapeutic advance and so on. 
Provisional approval is really where we pick up on Hans Gorg's uh, uh, talk, and that's really where the immediate availability of a medicine outweighs the uncertainty and the risk that additional data will be required. So it's based on promising evidence from early clinical data. Now, we've only had these systems in uh, fairly recently, certainly just in the last few months. So we've designated 13 priority review products. We've actually done full approvals on three of them in an average of about 110 day working days, uh, even though the uh, requirement's 150. That's in legislation. Now, we actually decided with provisional approval to avoid gaming and endless arguments to actually document the requirements in legislation. So a little bit different from a European approach. Of course, there are, is some European regulation, but we went into quite some detail because uh, if people feel they can get drugs to market quicker, everyone will want one of these. Mm. And we also want to make sure that it wasn't the drugs that just missed the cut. We wanted them to be the most innovative products with the greatest unmet clinical need that could be addressed. So we've designated just, it's only been around for about uh, nine or 10 weeks. We've already designated two oncology drugs, but it's obviously open more widely than oncology. The other thing about our priority view is we actually, unlike other countries, said that often extension of indications was a key area. And of course, you're able to do a review faster because you've already got all the clinical and quality and manufacturing, the non-clinical and quality and manufacturing data. And we're also quite rigid about our provisional approval. Uh, you get an initial two-year approval with a maximum of two by two-year extensions, and that's it. And uh, as you can see on the slide, the sponsor has to uh, bring certain evidence to us. Now, we've touched on the issue as to whether <coughs> drugs increasingly will be approved for individuals rather than populations. And I agree that personalised medicine is one of these buzzwords that actually hasn't, the reality hasn't met the ambition yet. We do, yes, we've moved away from prescribing carte blanche, but we are prescribing for subpopulations rather than for individuals. However, regulators are still making decisions based on populations often, and often maybe even subpopulations, especially if there's a marker. So how do individuals get access to a medicine? And this is where some of these special access schemes get, but can provide individual access to unapproved medicines. Now, the bar for, for benefit and risk is lower. The patient and the doctor are taking a greater risk and greater ethical requirement. And often these are when they've tried other drugs and uh, they haven't worked. In personalised medicine, one of the areas where the Australian regulatory scheme still needs significant improvement is we don't have a bespoke pathway for so-called companion diagnostics, where you might have a drug and a particular marker that you're wanting to test so that drug is applied to that population. What happens is that in vitro diagnostic tests are approved through one pathway, and it could be a generic test for a generic marker. I've shown BRCA just there as an example, but it isn't linked to that drug yet. And this is something we have to think about over the next year or two. It was quite interesting, and he hadn't seen my talk, but Hans Gorg mentioned right to try. And it's a rather frightening thing on one hand, uh, because in the US, at least what passed uh, Congress last week, totally bypasses FDA. Now, I'm biased, but there's a good reason post-solidamide why the US government set up a, a medicines regulator. In Australia, the debate has actually been around one group of products, the right to try debate, medicinal cannabis. And uh, quite commonly, there are views expressed, well, if I want to try medicinal cannabis, who is government to stand in my way? And of course, you look at the role of patients versus doctors and access schemes for unapproved therapeutic goods. 
coming to the end, uh, an issue that we as regulators in 2018 forward is how to really use big world data. We're probably pretty good in getting better, but with post-market issues, especially as we get larger data sets and especially as our electronic health records get more mature. But in pre-market sense, for use in medicines registration, and of course using real-world data for effectiveness is so important uh, in reimbursement, it's quite interesting now that the old days of drug versus placebo are really a diminishing number of trials that we see and a diminishing number of submissions. So many of our submissions are now based on comparative uh, effect, uh, efficacy at least. So it'll be an add-on to standard of care. So it'll be a second drug added on to the first. Another thing we struggle with, and we've had patient representatives and some absolutely excellent ones on our committees for some years, is really how to get input on the unmet therapeutic need issues, short of lobbying from a disease group. Uh, and we still really need to do more work on the unmet therapeutic need angle, and perhaps this will come out in later discussions. Just to wrap up, uh, products are changing. Again, as Hans Gorg said, the old uh, small chemically synthesised medicines are becoming the minority now. And here's an example of a new type of product that we're dealing with that somehow sits between cells and medicines. We're going to regulate them as biologicals. But these are personalised uh, medicines taken out of an individual patient and then their autologous cells sent off for some various medicine-like processing steps but then put back into the same patient. And this, this area is exploding. Uh, last week I saw some statistics that there's 375 CAR-T-like trials going on globally at the moment. So to wrap up, regulators have talked for years and years about benefit and risk, but to me the biggest thing that we have to approach in a measured way, working with stakeholders right across from patients to payers, is really how we address uncertainty. We don't have good frameworks for managing uncertainty. Then again, neither is there either good frameworks elsewhere in society for this. And sometimes the worst thing a regulator can do is confuse uncertainty with harms in decision making. Just because we don't know something about a medicine doesn't mean it's an adverse event. And we're going to get, as again Hans Gorg said, we're going to get less and less clinical data in a, in a number of our submissions. Sure, for mainstream cardiovascular drugs, we'll still have the big RCTs. But with those CAR T cells, with some of these orphan drugs, we're going to get smaller and smaller trials and often done in a different way. So it's an exciting time, but it's a very challenging time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, John. <coughs> and straight over to Joe, Joe Watson. Uh, thanks, everyone, and thanks for the opportunity. So I thought I'd try and step back for a minute for this talk and uh, actually try and get some context around the way we all work across the various domains. So we have a national medicines policy and a framework that within that sits the HTA, or Health Technology Assessment Framework. And within and alongside uh, an HTA process, we also have the various and now quite diverse national strategies adopted by all territory, state and Commonwealth government. These are already setting, if you like, a set of priorities and uh, trying to identify and understand after what has been often rigorous debate for many of them along the path of being <coughs> confirmed as national priorities, uh, a set of expectations on how we are going to manage this across populations uh, and subsets of those populations. Uh, within these frameworks, we also have what I, I call these so-called optimal outcomes, both outcomes in terms of health outcomes, but also those economic objectives that we want to see achieved. 
So what are the expectations of consumers within all this? So, of course, we as consumers expect safety and quality and nothing less. And in this country, uh, thankfully, we have set very high bars in terms of both that expectation and what has been achieved over the years in terms of the evolution of the regulator. But we also want to say that clinically effective as opposed to efficacious is what we want to see in terms of our real-life conditions and our real-life expectations of how we manage those. Subsidy and access is an enshrined principle in this country. The notion that equity is going to be there for that access across the whole of population is something that no one dares touch at any political level, and rightly so. And that sense of equity is something that burns quite strongly, even in the most passionate of patient groups who are single-mindedly speaking about access for their condition or their need at the time. The notion of competition amongst patient groups is something that we've worked very hard over several decades now to try and rub out of the environment. Innovation and advances, of course, as consumers, as a society and as individual patients, we are going to want to see, and we're going to want to see brought into a country that we believe is wealthy and well-adjusted and functional enough to be able to deliver that to us all as, as it becomes a technology brought into the reality of clinical management and decision-making. But with that comes, of course, something that has been spoken about here for the last two days, this notion of how patient-centredness is going to be part of that notion of quality use of medicines. Indeed, how are we going to choose wisely and what sort of information do we want to have before us as we utilise all these features? So in terms of some of the theme of this session, reimagining policy, so how is the policy environment responding? We want to see something that is fit for purpose. Uh, we want to see something that's going to be prepared for innovations coming, but we also want to understand how it's going to be positioned in what is already available across the landscape and whether or not it is something that is to be adopted for all or not. Advances in treatment require that sort of ongoing engagement. A full picture needs to be presented for patients and the broader society because the benefits and costs or the benefits and risks are something that all stakeholders, not just the payer or the sponsor or the academic researchers, uh, need to be across, especially if we want to see that consumer-centredness is actually about consumers saying what they'd like to see invested and what they want to see invested for those meaningful participations and debates. I think the policy and utilisation objectives are also something that we want to see continue to show flexibility in terms of a pragmatic or reasonable approach. And I would argue that we could point to case studies over the last several years, both through regulation as well as through payer, uh, or subsidy that has shown that sort of flexibility or reasonable approach. I don't think, to Han's point, that everything is as black and white as it may seem on a document. Finally, I think disinvestment, which is still such an ongoing uh, contemporary topic for us here in Australia, is something that we don't want to see as a one-off review, but something that continues ongoing into the future. So just in uh, my final couple of slides, I just wanted to try and 
if you like, be a bit provocative with some answers to the questions posed to us as panel members. So how would precision medicine maybe change the landscape? Well, how do we want to understand and communicate both the promise but also limitations? Example, the affordability and access issues of precision medicine and indeed how equitable that's going to be across border population needs. Assessing a value to patients beyond or even without clinical trials is a critical challenge for sure. And we can, but we can all, I think, imagine where the new approaches can be there that still give us what we need by way of evidence base. I think alignment with international approaches to HDA is something that's often thrown up at us, but I would also push back on understanding what it is that we can be at the forefront of as opposed to aligning with. And what are some of the evolving areas in the methodology and approaches that we can say are specific to a country like Australia that we want to preserve? Preparedness for the future in terms of reforms and innovations in policy. Well, reform is often also, I think, about being able to reflect and seize on what it is we want to maintain or retain. And finally, what is emerging to drive better outcomes for patients? I think we want a stronger involvement in clinical and research development to continue because ultimately patient access can happen in many ways. Uh, clinical exposure in this country does not have to come at the end. Uh, and I think that we need to also understand study designs for Australian-specific populations and where they can fit all the way along that sort of pathway. Thanks very much. Thanks, Joe. Thank you very much indeed. And we'll jump straight on now to Andrew, Professor Andrew Wilson. Thank you, and thank you for the opportunity to talk today. Um, look, I, I want to start, I'm going to keep my comments short because I, I think there's a very interesting discussion that can go on here. But let me just start by acknowledging Hans Jorg um, as, a, as one of the thought leaders in this, in this field internationally, he's, he really is, and by what we'd colloquially call in Australia, um, hands a, a, a stirrer. That is, that you are making people think differently about these things. Um, and as I've said in, in, in other fora, um, the day that we stop thinking that we've got the best health system in the world, that we stop thinking, um, that we start to think that we can't improve our health system, that we can't improve the way we, um, in, in this case, do HDA and subsidy of medicines, um, then my job becomes boring and, and I certainly won't be here doing it. Um, I'd also just like to start by um, acknowledging the areas that I agree with. Um, uh, with Hans Jorg in relation to this. So Hans Jorg, I totally agree with you. I hate the use of the term personalised medicine as well. Um, but now let me start to talk about the things that I don't necessarily agree with uh, in relation to some of the things that you've said. And, and I just want to be clear here. I, I, I think what you're, what you're doing and what you're uh, aiming to do in challenging us to think differently is absolutely essential. And I think there are many grains uh, uh, many elements of what you're talking about um, which we do need to think about and we are thinking about, but maybe not uh, with quite the sort of radical uh, look that you would bring to, uh, to that perspective. And I think one of the reasons for that, from my perspective, from my perspective as the chair of the PBAC, 
is that I'm not a regulator. John's the regulator. I chair a body which advises government about whether it should subsidise medicines. And there are two things that we really have to take on board in relation to that. Of course, it's really, really important to us that patients get access to medicines that work, that are effective, that are safe, and get those as quickly as possible. But the other reason why we exist, and it's legislated in terms of the reasons why we exist, is to try and ensure that there is value for public funding. Because I think the thing that the regulator doesn't deal with is this issue, particularly in systems um, where uh, you have to, where uh, the where the subsidy is coming from the public purse is this issue of public value. And so our way that we think about these things comes from that perspective. So when I think about the issue of conditional approvals, and I'm going to keep my, uh, uh, my comments really around this because I think it is one of the big challenges that we're going to have here in Australia, and you point out uh, that uh, we're in this very nice situation where we, you know, we essentially only have uh, one regulator and, uh, and one body uh, subsidising. That's not totally true, uh, given there are other mechanisms for funding mechanisms, but we're the, the big show in town in relation to that. You're right, there are real opportunities for us to work better together here. And, and John didn't mention the parallel processing process for, for medicines, which we probably implemented more than any other country in the world. Uh, in relation to that, most of the new drug entities coming through now come through as, uh, as um, parallel processing, meaning that they're handled by the TGA as at the same time as the PBAC. And as a result of that, now two surveys show that we have the fastest time to first HTA decision of any countries in that sort of the OECD, uh, sort of the equivalent countries to our own in relation to that by several weeks to months in, in most cases in relation to that. But there's a caveat to that. 75% of those HDA decisions at, on those new drug ent entities at the point when we consider them are generally a negative in relation to that. So yes, we get to the decision point the fastest, but we have the higher negative rate. Well, why is that? Because if you've got a rapid pathway that goes through, you're, dealing, you're almost by definition dealing with an issue of a higher level of uncertainty in the decision making that, you, that you're doing. And when you're trying to think about it from a relative value perspective, you think about that as you beautifully set out, that conditional approval, those rapid pathways means that <coughs> what we think works, A, we give it a conditional approval, we think it's safe enough to, to give it a conditional approval, but we don't know what the relative uh, value of that is. We don't know how much better it is than, than other things which are available in many cases. We don't know even relatively simple aspects of uh, the relative safety of a drug in relation to that. And we certainly have a very poor scope, as you beautifully uh, set out, about what that means in terms of patient populations and subpopulations in relation to that. In fact, we may only know for a very, very tiny portion of the potential patient uh, population um, uh, what, whether that drug looks like it works at all. So there's a high level of uncertainty. Now what does that sort of mean in a, in a, in a, in a more global sense? What it, what it means in fact as we go down this pathway is that the risk that pharmaceutical companies previously carried on bringing a drug to market where they would have reduced some of that uncertainty by doing those trials 
and, and, and we'll come back to the trial evidence moment because it doesn't have to be a randomised trial, but they had a responsibility for doing that as part of what they brought forward. We're now being asked to share as part of the, pub, the, public, the public funding perspective. So we're now moving to an environment where there is an increased share, sharing of that risk about what we don't understand, a sharing of that uncertainty. So for me, what that means is, that's fine if that's the way we want to go, if we see that as having a public good to do that, we need, but we need to recognise it is a sharing and the price of the drugs should reflect that. It should reflect that sharing arrangement. And that should be the way that companies come to and, has, and have that discussion with us. It's not, I can assure you, that's not where they come from uh, when they come to have that discussion uh, about doing that. So, a couple of other things I just wanted to comment on in relation to this. You, you, we, we almost got stuck for a little while there about the issue around the randomised control trial and the value of this. And I, there, there is an issue that's important here. I mean, certainly from our perspective, while we think the randomised control trial is, is the best standard for, the, for uh, uh, answering the question of efficacy in any relationship, it's not the only information that we look at and we use whatever information is presented to us uh, to make our judgments around that. But the more important point, from, I think, in thinking about that randomised control trial and where we go to that, is that if we go down the pathway of making judgments based on lesser evidence of randomised control trials, it's very difficult for us to go back to the randomised control trial. There's a sort of hierarchy, a, a pathway that you follow down there. So it's very difficult to go back once you've decided to approve a drug and then say, oh, no, wait a minute, we, we, we should do a randomised trial around this. It's extremely difficult, particularly if the drug's on patent in relation to do that. So there, there is some other order effects that we have to take in in relation to, uh, to what we might do in relation to that. So I'm going to leave my comments there. Um, I, think, I think one of the challenges to say in taking on board this, uh, what I think are important thoughts for us, um, is that you the perspective that you bring to the question places a different emphasis on the types of thing that you will do. But I also want to emphasise that this is a, it is in Australia a changing, changing landscape. We will have to respond and government will have to respond in terms of uh, the use of the, uh, of the conditional pathway uh, in relation to that. Um, the, 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 the faster track, the, uh, the priority pathway is, is not so much of an issue for us in that regard. And we will need to think through some of these things and I, I look forward to some further discussion around it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much. And we'll go straight on to Megan, Dr. Megan Keeney. Hi, everyone. I'm Megan Keeney. Sorry, I was asked to come at very <laughs> short notice. And as I walked out the door, um, Penny Shakespeare said, talk about genomics. But I'm not going to talk about genomics because I heard Hans Jorg's talk and uh, of course I'm going to talk about my favourite topic which is value in healthcare uh, and probably from the perspective of the MBS review which is what uh, I had been working on until recently. Um, and really my message is going to be very simple because um, you know I've come after Andrew and of course government and the department completely endorses the approach taken by Andrew in his chairmanship of, the, of PBAC um, and I'm sure Penny would say that. But, I'd like to make the point that Australia has been very well served by having very strong pre-market processes, particularly in the re well, both from the regulatory and in the reimbursement space. Um, and so, um, and I often say to people that the difference between 
you know, the 10% or so that Australia's of GDP that Australia spends on healthcare and the 17 or 18 percent that the US spends on healthcare is that we have a PBAC and an MSAC. Mm -hmm. And uh, it has been a strong feature of our healthcare arrangements for a very long time that we strongly link um, evidence of health benefit to cost and to cost effectiveness. Uh, and that's been carried through for, for decades now. Um, and the reason that it is so important, or one of the reasons it's so important, because is because disinvestment is so hard. Uh, despite the fact that we tried to build very good post-market review processes, we do so in the, in the regulatory space, we do so in the reimbursement space through our post-market reviews program in medicines and through the MBS review, um, disinvestment is really difficult. Uh, and, and that's not surprising. Um, and it's really been the case, um, certainly in the MBS review, that we actually have to prove uh, in trying to make the case of disinvestment to some extent, uh, that in fact we need to provide evidence that a particular therapy or technology does not work uh, or does have no, has no benefit. Um, and then of course we're also straddling into this area of clinician use of um, products, um, which itself is a challenging area. Um, we ask of our committees, both PBAC and MSAC now, or, or, or they've certainly um, probably themselves recognised that there are two questions that they're answering, or two pieces of advice, at least, that they're giving to government. One is the threshold question about whether or not this particular technology uh, or service is um, uh, comparatively effective to an existing service and cost-effective. But the other advice they give us is around the appropriate use of that technology or therapy. And, uh, and again, that leads into good systems that we have in place around uh, the listing conditions for medicines, and then the, the um, descriptors that are attached to MBS-funded services, where we hope at least that clinicians will observe those rules, if you like, about what is appropriate use. Um, unfortunately, though, in real-world practice, uh, that's sometimes not the case. And again, that falls into this space of post-market review, where it becomes very difficult to wind back what, be what can become widespread practice in quite short time. I'll give you one example of that, which is one that's been, um, we've talked about this week, both in the press and then before Senate estimates yesterday, uh, which is MRI of the knee in older people. So a technology that's been around for a long time, initially recommended by specialists, now in the GP space, has only been in the GP space as an MBS-funded service since 2013. Um, wide acknowledgement that MRI in older people has little clinical value. Um, and uh, and uh, recommendations from the task force that we should wind back provision of that service through the MBS to people aged under 50. But now, um, fortunately, government has accepted that recommendation, is implementing it. But now a lot of resistance from um, uh, many health professionals that that is a wise thing to do or appropriate thing to do. Um, and that is off the back of very, very good evidence about its appropriate use and very good acceptance of that. Um, so again, um, Yes, we need to be adaptive and uh, flexible and move with the times, particularly to meet the challenge of innovation. And I think that um, uh, from hearing from both John and Andrew today, you've heard about how we are doing that in a, in a proactive way in the, both in the medicine space. Um, and you'll see more of it as we move into the genomic space um, very soon. We have our first um, uh, application for uh, CAR-T therapy before MSAC at the moment. And um, um, I'm quite sure, certain that MSAC will be looking at that very closely, recognising the novelty of, 
uh, the therapy and will be very keen in giving it advice to um, government to put around that service recommendations about its appropriate use. So thanks. Thank you very much, Megan. Thank you. Now, in the short time that we have before tea break, I'm going to eat into tea break a little bit because I'm sure you're okay with that. This is such an interesting discussion to have. Um, I, I just want to generate a few questions here and I'm going to do the um, typical press gallery thing and ask a double-barrelled question because I may not get another one in. <laughs> but I, I get the impression that Australia, it, it is felt among all of you, Australia is doing quite well. Um, but I, I want to know where... Where is Australia leading the pack, but where are we also falling behind? Particularly given this conference is talking about the future is now. Mm. With the future in mind, where, where are the stumbling blocks for Australia? What, what are we not paying attention to that we perhaps need to? It's all very well mm. to congratulate ourselves, but, but let, let's be honest about the stumbling blocks, the obstacles. What are they? I'll throw it open to all of you. I'll kick off if that's okay. Uh, where are we falling behind? I think we still need to have a debate about uh, greater transparency uh, in our in our systems. Uh, there's always a challenge of balancing uh, it, companies' commercial and confidence requirements with uh, obviously patients who want to see greater transparency both on decisions and even transparency on what products have been submitted and what's under evaluation. Uh, unlike Europe, for example, Australia doesn't say what products are currently under evaluation. I think we've got a long way to go, whether it's stratified or personal, I think we've got a long way to go really in having an effective system for better linking medicines with the markers that identify the subpopulations that they're used for. That sounds highly technical, but it actually is a stumbling block to making sure that we're actually best targeting those products. Mm. And I think one of the other things that we uh, uh, still have a way to go is uh, joining up our policy thinking more. Now, I mean, Andrew indicated that uh, the government, for whatever reason, quite deliberately said, look, we just want to think about regulatory changes to the system. We don't want, and it was an external committee that did it, it wasn't uh, Andrew and myself. We don't want that group to consider reimbursement. Now, that's history, that's what, that was the recommendation. but. There was probably a bit of an opportunity lost, but we didn't uh, get together on the interface between uh, 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 regulation access. Uh, the world's changed. I mean, a decade ago, if medicines were approved by us but not reimbursed by PVAC, they might have cost $70, $80, $90. Drugs like Immigrant, drugs like uh, Singular, before it went generic, Montelukast for asthma, they were about 100 bucks. And so, yes, they cost more than the copay, but they were accessible at a bit of an extra cost. Now when you're into therapies that are a couple of hundred thousand dollars, you know, unless if you're uh, a tycoon, uh, they're not accessible if they're approved by a regulator but uh, uh, not, not reimbursed and they may not be reimbursed for good reasons. So I think we've missed an opportunity to join our policy thinking up uh, as much as we could have. Okay, any other thoughts from panellists? So just moving on from that, I'd, I mean, I agree with John, but I think uh, with transparency, you can lift the veil, but if we've got a real problem with communicating what it means in terms of mm -hmm. both understanding the problem before us, either through regulatory or through reimbursement, or indeed, from a patient perspective, what is it that we're talking about when we say 
precision medicine or personalised medicine and why there will be those that it is appropriate for or not. If we can't do that, if we don't invest in ways of really having that conversation, all the transparency in the world still won't mm. improve what is a lot of confusion and a lot of, quite frankly, hype. Mm. So, mm. so um, I, I, I think it's, it's important to acknowledge some of the things which will help change the scene as at that moment. And I think important to acknowledge the investment that the government has made in uh, clinical trials infrastructure mm. in Australia in the recent mm. times. Um, the, and particularly around rare diseases, but um, also uh, other. Th this, is, this is potentially a game changer for us in terms of some of the things that Hans George ch challenged us with. Um, you know, we, we, if you are going to have these more uh, uh, rapid approaches to bring, uh, bringing drugs in, then you need to have the capacity to do things differently to mm. think about it. So, for example, um, a lot of the medicines that we're getting at the moment. Um, we do not know how long people have to be treated on them for. So if you take the PD-L1 inhibitors, um, do, we keep do we need to keep people on those for life or could mm. we actually stop those drugs at one year potentially and get the same benefits? Mm. Or, um, how often uh, should we allow people who are taking biological DMARDs for various inflammatory diseases um, uh, to, to, to get the sort of maximum benefit in relation to that. At the moment, we basically let people continue to cycle through the number of drugs there. Is that particularly good value? Mm. So there is potentially a way to bring some of these elements together that's starting to get in place, um, but it really is very provisional in terms of what's there. Come at going with that is that I think that will also give us a lot more scope to think about and, and Hans George referred to this: the, the notion of the managed entry arrangements, other ways that we can bring them, in, you know, bring drugs uh, sooner into an environment which is more, which is from from the, at least from the perspective of the of, of, of the advisors on subsidy um, to uh, a, a more controlled environment for working those things mm. out. The value proposition. Mm. Megan, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, so I, I suppose my perspective is around is often around variations in healthcare. So I, I think that's a real challenge in our system. So mm. um, I, I don't think Australia is alone with that, and I think probably we're probably like many things ahead of the pack in some respects in that we've tried to map the variations in healthcare um, and uh, around use of pharmaceuticals and use of um, medical services and hospital services. Um, and that's a first step. Understanding what those variations are is a first step to. You know, making you know, matching what is best practice to what is actually happening, and and bridging that gap. So mm. I think that's where we could um, have further investment. Okay, I'll take a, a question, but I, I just one point. I won't take any questions about specific um, specific uh, funding decisions around particular mm. medicines. Um, that's not appropriate for this kind of forum. Sir, your question. Thanks very much. Uh, Steve Phillips is my name. Uh, I've had some experience uh, over the last uh, couple of decades in uh, registration and subsidy decision making and quality use of medicines and in fact I should be working for John today. John, I'll have to bring a note tomorrow but um, <laughs> thank you all for uh, five very thoughtful and articulate presentations. Um, a lot of interlinking thoughts and a lot of challenges in there. Uh, and I don't want to take the uh, air out of the balloon entirely because I know the future is now, but my question relates to the fact that the past is also now. 
Um, and it comes back to comments that have been made repeatedly, uh, particularly at the beginning of today, about why we're here doing what we do. Uh, it's to get effective outcomes uh, for healthcare for consumers. And so a continuing bugbear in my mind is the state of the information that we have available to us, particularly for consumers uh, in Australia in relation to what's called as Consumer Medicines Information or CMI, which sends a shutter down many people's spines in this room, I'm sure. And that document's directly derived from the product information for Hans Jörg, that's the label information. Uh, and uh, for many, many legacy drugs, and let's not forget that decisions that are made today, uh, drugs and medicines uh, become legacy medicines very quickly. Mm. The information is not up to date. And in some cases, it is pitifully out of date. And in many cases, it is frankly dangerous. And it's the only information we have available out there for people to make decisions about medicines and for healthcare professionals and consumers to have discussions about those decisions. <coughs> there is no other reference source apart from the product information mm. uh, that has authority and the directly derived consumer medicines information. So with a long preamble uh, to take us from the lofty to the pedestrian, um, could I ask how panel members and when are we going to solve the issue of currency of product information and effective consumer medicines information that can facilitate the conversations that we all want to have to make healthy consumers. Okay, thanks for that question, Stephen. A long one, and I'll take part of it as a comment, but an important point. Consumer information and improving access mm. to good information for consumers. What, what do we need to be doing and what should we be doing around that that we aren't? Well, my first, my first response would just be that not all consumers agree it's got to be done through the CMI. Mm. Um, there's a, a lot of passionate consumer uh, advocates and uh, patients who say they do rely on it and they expect better, for sure. It's been a long-standing issue for a number of groups over the years, as you say. But there's also now a growing uh, population, if you like, across the patient groups that say, no, we actually want better than that. And we want to be able to work through ourselves, some of the bigger patient groups in particular, what is the ream of trial data? What are the packages that go before the regulator and the reimbursement um, uh, committees? And understand ourselves what is being asked of, of those committees and those processes for us as Australian patients and for it to be introduced onto the PBS here today. The CMA will not cut that. And people need to, uh, I think, pick what is going to be useful for one part or one aspect of patient information or education and what actually needs to be much better and much more sophisticated. And that's my reference back to the investment in having really serious dialogues now beyond some of these quite clunky resources. So, so just a thought. I yes, mean, Andrew? actually, most people will actually you know, go online and search on Google or wherever for information a long time before they get their CMI mm. in relation to that. Mm. Now, governments have, played a, have shown a great resistance to the idea of regulating anything to do with the web. But yeah. there's absolutely no reason why they couldn't, for example, insist that an, a web search engine put up a, an authoritative source for that information whenever somebody searched for that drug. Mm. You could just mandate mm. that and 
if you want to mm. run Google in Australia, that would be a requirement to do it. They do it mm. now because they sent, they put up the front there, as you know, the things that people pay for. Mm. 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 Um, it's a very doable thing, yes. And, mm. and speaking of that, and we'll finish off with this, but I can't help but, but ask, and this seems to be the panel to ask, the question about the politics and support of the industry. Now, we've just had a federal budget and we've seen considerable investment um, in, in um, new medicines, um, health technologies, new technologies, research. Um, it would seem that there is, is therefore good support and understanding at the moment politically for the need to, for Australia to be the forefront of, um, of uh, research development and new health, health technologies. Is that a fair call or are we, am I missing something here? Is there still a, uh, <coughs> an area that is severely overlooked or underfunded? There's <laughs> always going to be a claim that things are overlooked or overfunded and a budget headline's not going to cut it for those that aren't in those paragraphs, right? Mm. So for many patient groups there was mm. celebration, there was a feeling mm. of a real sense of recognition of their issue or need. Mm. But as I said in my uh, brief presentation, this is not a competition. People mm. need to trust that the system is reasonable across all needs. Mm. Yeah, any, any other closing so, so, comments so, on that issue? Um, and, and that leads to a, a, an area that uh, the hand jogs touched on, which um, I think is it really does need some further thinking. Um, and that is the area of what constitutes unmet need mm. uh, in, in this regard. Mm. Now, mm. Uh, the TGA review uh, uh, started that discussion and did a consultation around it. It, it had to fairly rapidly come to a definition so that they could actually move forward in relation to that. I, I don't think it's perfect. I doubt whether John thinks it's perfect. Um, and I think we need to continue that conversation because um, there are different elements to what mm. that's about and it, it is very fundamental to a number of the things that we're talking about in terms of where you might want to make the effort to, uh, to do things differently. Because there will always be mm. uh, situations, uh, um, Hans Jorg used the, uh, the example of asthma, Mm. Um, yeah, I'm, there are people in that, in that asthma community who, yeah. you know, who definitely need new, newer therapies because they're not well controlled at the moment. But the broader asthma community probably st feels like it, there are you know, things that it would want as well. How do we make those decisions about needs? Because that will, invest, that will in, impact on a, across the range of things that we could potentially um, do better mm. together. Just on how to make those, those uh, decisions. It's got a lot to do with the, the power of the lobbying uh, and the consumer mm. groups too um, behind particular issues and particular medicines, hasn't it? Oh, no. No, because if that was the case, uh, if that was the case, you wouldn't have things coming back for five or six times trying to get to a place in a negotiation between a payer and, uh, and, and a sponsor that it's time to list. If it was the loudest voice that was going to win, mm. uh, you wouldn't see the 1,500 consumer submissions sitting over there mm. at Woden today that we have for our next meeting. Mm. Um, if nothing else, um, well, as long as I'm around, if nothing else, we've got to be able to ensure that that trust is there at the bedrock that says, not loudest voice, but reasonable process for all, and we understand it. Beautifully put, Joe. Thank you very much. And that's very comforting too. We're going to have to leave this panel here. The time has whizzed by yet again. We've eaten into your morning tea time, but I'm sure you won't mind because it's a fascinating discussion. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please 
thank John, Joe, Andrew and Megan.